Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. You can join as we uh, read through the first eight verses. If you are not aware of this, on the back side of your bulletin, there should be a handout. If you are inclined to taking notes or jotting things down, I uh, would have you do that. Um, just, to, if, if I may, one, one little slight, this is really nothing to do with the, uh, the message this morning, other than it's just sticking in my head still from our prayer time and our sharing time and our prayer time just now. And so I'm just going to throw this out there. If you're using your bulletin as a handout and you're inclined to jot things down, if you would just maybe uh, make a little notation on the side. Uh, if you want to make it obvious, it has nothing to do with the message, it's fine. But make a little notation on the side to uh, just spend some time this coming week in Second Peter chapter 1, uh, maybe the first, uh, well, certainly the first uh, nine verses. Uh, those verses, uh, well, verse 3 is really the verse I was, was thinking about. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this. I'm guessing you know this. Maybe you know this or maybe you don't. I don't know. But uh, there's a verse in the Bible that says this. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says that God's divine power, his divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And he goes on, talks about the precious and great promises. But uh, it's really that first part. Uh, God's divine power has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. This is a question that was uh, really rattling around my brain, and uh, we spent all of our sessions with uh, when I was out in Naumburg Mennonite Church in New York just this past week. But uh, do you really believe that? Are you really convinced about that? That God in his divine power has given you everything you need to live a godly life. And I don't just mean like we're sitting in church and so we know the answer and like, yeah, yeah, we know. But do you really believe that? Does, the, does your life show that you really believe that? I mean, let's not kid ourselves. If there's any place we should be able to be honest with each other, it's here at church when we know that the, we're talking about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is, you know, sees right through us and knows everything about us. So if there's any place we should be honest, it's here. And being godly is pretty hard work, Right? It's a lot of sacrifice. It's a lot of laying down your flesh. It's a lot of not doing stuff you'd really want to do and a lot of doing things you don't want to do. And it can be difficult, right? It can be a struggle. It's hard sometimes, especially when you're looking around the world and seeing that they don't care one bit about it. And even worse, when you're looking around at other people who call themselves Christians and they're saying, oh, don't worry about that stuff. You don't need to worry about that. That's not that. You don't, uh, it's, don't, you don't want to be like, you don't want to be like one of those weird people that's, you know, that's all you think about and all you talk about is Jesus and, I mean, be normal at least a little bit, right? That gets even tougher. It's a struggle, right? And in the Word of God, it says that God has given us everything that we need according to His divine power. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. He goes on. You read those verses because he goes on to talk about some things, what those things are. And I'd love to have a conversation with you if you unearth some things and want to talk about them. That's not really where we're going this morning. It is a question that's in my head, and so I thought I'd ask it. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's turn our attention to the, the book of Nehemiah. We've had a, a little, little break um, from, because uh, I wasn't here last week, 
from where we were at, but I hope that hasn't stopped the, uh, the, the, what's, what I sense has been building in us as Nehemiah discovers the trouble and shame that, that Jerusalem is in, that the people of Jerusalem are in, the people of Israel, God's people are in, uh, that, that he's, he, it, it affects him. And he begins to pray, he begins to weep, he begins to mourn, he begins to fast, and he does this going forward. He does it, and it visibly affects him. And, and we spent some time two weeks ago saying, this, these things ought to affect us. We, I had a whole message Sunday morning about, about the, our trouble and shame, and, and then our response out of that. And now we want to move, keep moving because we find out that Nehemiah doesn't just pray, but he uh, is a man of action as well. So let's jump in, read the verses, and see where the Lord takes us this morning. Second uh, chapter of Nehemiah, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that's the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, which is why Nehemiah was in his presence. Remember, he's the cupbearer. He uh, he tests the wine before it's given to the king. When wine was, uh, was uh, before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. The king said to me, why is your face sad seeing that you were not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And, let, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Father, we have these verses before us, and we want to understand and respect them as the Word of God, and uh, let them speak to us, let them uh, preach to us, let them uh, dictate to us what is true and what is right, not us to them. We're grateful for the words we have. We ask for your Spirit's help in understanding and uh, breaking this apart, and maybe things we've already understood or known helped reassert them, redrive them into our heads and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to walk through the text, it's what we always do, and uh, point out, uh, I, I kind of try to give shape to it, so it helps us uh, walk through it uh, uh, the best way we can, but we're going to start here, because up to this point, we've had introduction to Nehemiah. We know that, uh, that uh, when, uh, when Nehemiah first heard this word, it was in the 20th year, so it's still in the 20th year. Uh, we had not more than a year has passed from when Nehemiah first was found out. We don't know exactly uh, when it is, although I think you could figure some of that out, because it says the month of Nisan. And uh, the first one was the month of Kislev, so it, some time has passed, and uh, he's heard these words, and they've affected him, and he is uh, now coming before the king, and we're, we're not told specifically, but I would suggest to us that we can uh, understand pretty closely, when he says, I had not ever been sad in the king's presence, uh, the implication is there that that probably wouldn't be such a good thing, right? That probably wouldn't be such a good thing. Now, by the way, if, just pause for a moment. If you had, let's say, let's say it's been 15 days, and you had been fasting. Now, I don't know that he was fasting, like, completely all 15 days, but you had been fasting for 15 days, and you had been mourning and weeping. Um, what, what would you look like? What, 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 would your, what would your outward body look like? What would your face look like? What would your attitude be like? 
there's some changes that happen, right? I don't know how it's the longest any of you has fasted, but I remember we did a three-day fast uh, a couple of years ago here as men. And, uh, I, you know, I, there were some physical changes that happened when you don't eat for that long. That's just what happens. But he comes in the king's presence, and the king says these words to him. Why is your face sad seeing that you're not sick? Now, let's stop there for a little bit because remember what his job was? When he comes in the king's presence and looks like that, and his job is to test the wine to make sure no one's poisoned it, what do you think the king is going to start thinking or wondering? This guy looks like something's not right with him, and he attested and approved, supposedly, what I'm about to eat and drink. I'm guessing that's probably why, I don't want to make a huge point about this, I'm guessing it's probably why it was not that common or not, not that, uh, in today's lingo, not that cool for him to be looking sad in the king's presence. The king says, you're not sick, are you? Why are you looking sad? And he says, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. This is nothing but sadness of what's coming out of the inside. Something about what was going on in his life, uh, it was, became visible outside. It's sure, the physical things happen when you're fasting, but more than that, because there was stuff going on inside of him, right? Which gives me one more opportunity, one more opportunity, I don't know if it'll be last, but it may be, to remind us or to ask us or to just, just press into us one more time, how often are we that affected by the things that are going on around us, the difficulty we see, the evil we see, the Christlessness that we see around us, or by the things that are affecting the church or that are affecting our family? How often are we so dramatically affected that people can look at us and say, what's the matter? What's going on? You're not sick, are you? But something's going on. This, is, can't, this can't be anything. Now, these are words from King Artaxerxes, but this can't be anything but sadness of the heart. Something's going on inside that's affecting what's happening here. I ask that question because it is my position, not just for you but for me, that that doesn't happen as often as it ought to. We are not nearly as affected by sin and the evil we see around us and the devastation we see to the church or to our family or maybe even to our own personal lives, as we ought to be. There's more things that we have to talk about this. By the way, this is what King Artaxerxes says is actually a reflection of Scripture. In Proverbs, we read this. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. When things aren't right in here, then, there's, then our, our spirit is crushed and that comes out to the outside. I mean, this is, this is basic stuff, but it's so important for us because it's so fundamental, so basic for us. This is why it's being hypocritical that when things are not going that well for you that you paste on a nice smile and you say, yeah, things are good to each other. Because it's not true. By the way, if you think it's a weird attitude for Nehemiah to have, Paul demonstrates the exact same attitude in Romans chapter 9. He says this. This is New Testament. Paul speaking. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Verse 1 of chapter 9 of Romans. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ 
for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You understand what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, I am affected deeply by the fact that many of my people who have the same flesh as me, the same race as me, Israelites, do not know Jesus as their Savior. And that bothers me. He says, the reason he says it bothers me is because it's from them that all this stuff comes from to start with. It's for them that God has, has brought all these things through. And they don't even know it. He goes so far as to say... Now listen carefully, church. He goes so far as to say, I would almost rather myself not have Christ if it meant all of them would have Christ. Now that puts our feet to the fire, doesn't it? When's the last time you would have been willing to lose your salvation for some other wicked sinner out there? Now, I don't know that that's actually really what Paul, I mean, I don't think that's really what he meant necessarily, but he was displaying the level of, of sorrow and of angst that he had for those that were unsaved, for the sin that was, that was besetting people, for the bondage people were in, for the blindness they had, for the hardness of their heart they had, for the stiffness of their neck they had. If by some small chance, Nehemiah felt like that when he heard of trouble and shame, and Paul felt like that when he heard of how the Israelites didn't know Jesus yet, perhaps we ought to feel a bit more like that sometimes. I think it's probably why when James wrote to us, he used these words. He said, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now we have this expression that it's not helpful for us to be sour-faced uh, Christians. That doesn't exude the joy of the Lord. And I would say that's largely correct. But we also must recognize that the, on the flip side of that, it does no good for us to be flippantly uh, happy or to have uh, continual, uh, no, no recognition of the devastation that sin is causing in our own lives and the lives of our families and the lives of our churches and in our nation and in our world. You can go as far as you want to. Again, I, I emphasize this because we probably spend too much time on the other side of this, but again, I see us largely living a life or lives that are full of doing what we want to do, we're busy, we are entertained, we are having our peace and quiet, we are having our family, we are doing everything we can, we're having good lives, we're being successful in the things we do, and we are largely unaffected by evil and what it does to us and around us and among us. I think that's what these verses are coming from. Humble yourself before the Lord. By the way, reaching back into the Old Testament with a psalm, verse from the Psalms, we know that God says what he really wants is broken spirits and contrite hearts. I should just read the verse. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's not very fun, right? It's a lot easier to talk about joy and laughter and happiness. And God does all those things. But the path to joy and laughter and happiness is through Death is through laying down, is through humility, is through mourning and weeping for the, state, the status of our sin, the status of our heart, the evil of our heart. That's what the Bible says. Our hearts are wicked and desperately evil. 
We cannot be lifted up by God if we have not humbled ourselves. That's something we don't like to acknowledge. So it's no fun. It's no fun for me to come to you on a Sunday morning. It's a beautiful day, and we're having a great time together. We're worshiping together. We sing these great songs, which we're going to get it back to those, by the way. Thanks, Todd, for leading those. We sing these great songs. And then I start off the message of being a killjoy and saying, hey, we got to recognize that we don't mourn and weep like we ought to. We don't have broken hearts like we ought to. Our spirits are not burdened enough for the sin of the world, for our own sin. But I must and cannot and will not move from what I think Scripture is teaching us so clearly. Nehemiah stood in the presence of the one who absolutely held power over him as to whether he was going to live or die that day. And in a position where he probably was not, not he was expected to, to not show uh, any of the sadness or any of the problems that he had. The king doesn't want to know about those things. He doesn't care about those things for Nehemiah. That may make him sound harsh, but it's probably how the king was. And the king is, knows that Nehemiah was visibly affected by what's happening. This can no, be nothing except for uh, sadness of the heart. But Nehemiah knows this about God. Nehemiah knows humility brings God's exaltation. He knows that a broken and contrite heart is what God will not despise. And therefore, when the king says that to him, he says, King I hope you live forever, but how can I not be sad at the devastation that's happened to my people? And then the king asks words that I'm guessing probably took that fear to another level. What are you requesting? What do you want? See, here's where the rubber meets the road. What do you want? It also leads us to be reminded that just being sad for sin doesn't really accomplish a lot unless we're willing to tell God what we want. What do we want him to do with that? How do we want that to change? And here the king is saying, what do you want? And it brings me to this verse because I want to just pay a little attention to this. I actually kind of took two verses together because I want, to, I want you to see them together. Because Nehemiah wrote this. He said, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, I bring this verse into the focus because I see something in Nehemiah that sometimes is lacking in us. And so I just, want to, I just want to bring it out. In Nehemiah, we see a man of prayer and a man of action. And a man of both all, like at the same time. We tend to often have, we tend to often have, it seems to me anyway, we tend to often have people who like to think through things and pray about things and do all that kind of stuff. And sometimes not a lot happens. And then we tend to have people who just do a lot of things and get stuff done and say, ah, those guys are just spending, wasting all their time over there. Let's just get this done. Let's do it. But they don't always spend so much time in prayer. And in Nehemiah, I see a bringing together of those two. It's actually, I, I labeled it a leadership principle, but it really doesn't have to be limited to leadership principle. But since I told you I'm going to point, pull out things that I think are, are, are a manual for how to be a godly leader, here's a leadership principle, I think, for all of us. If you are in any way influencing people, which many of us are, whether we think we're leaders or not, a godly leader knows how to balance prayer and action, how to bring both of those in. I love, and this is not the last time. We're going to see it again later on in Nehemiah, but I love how Nehemiah does that. He's in a conversation with the king, right? He's face-to-face -face with the guy who's going to determine whether he gets what he requests or not. At least that's what we think. But as he's having this conversation, he says, I'm praying to God and I'm talking here. I love, there's just something so simple and yet so so powerful about that. 
Would that we would people be people like that, that we would be praying to God and then we would speak. We'd be praying to God and then we would do it. The marriage of those two things is so important. He prays to God and he says to the king, if it pleases you, I'd like to go back. I'd like to go back and rebuild this city. Now, we should understand that's a bit of a dangerous request, right? You're talking to the king of an empire who, now he, he took over an empire that really did this action, but a, you're talking to a king of an empire who went about destroying other countries, other, other little nations and tribes of people, and displacing them and destroying those cities so that they could not rise up again. And here a man says, I want to go to someplace far away from you that's still in your kingdom where you can't really keep very good track of anymore and I want to rebuild the kingdom or the city that was the center of an empire that got destroyed by your nation. Well, the nation that preceded you but the one you took over. It's a bit of a dangerous request, right? Why would the king even do that? Why would he think about doing that? Why would he send someone back to strengthen something that could possibly be to his harm? So far in this conversation, if I were Nehemiah anyway, I think I would have sort of a deepening sense of, oh boy, it just keeps getting tougher. It keeps getting worse. I'm just not sure. Because every time he asks the question, I have to be answering it. And every time I answer the question and give my request, it just sort of raises the bar to think, why would the king even consider something like this? Lo and behold, the king says, well, I put that, I'm not sure why I split that slide, but the king says, how long are you going to be gone? When are you going to come back? I don't know how, maybe I should just ask you, but probably can't have a real good conversation right here, but I don't know how you take that question. What the king is doing. Is he starting to give agreement to it? Starting to say, yeah, let's work this out? Or is it a test? What are you going to say? How, what, what are you really, how, how far are you going to take this? By the way, Yet another evidence, this is not a small task. We don't actually know what the exact answer is, what Nehemiah gives him, because he doesn't give us that. He just says when we had come to a time that the king agreed to. We don't know exactly how long he asked for, but we do know how long it ended up being. Does anybody know how long Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem for? I think you might have just said it. What would you say? 12 years. Good job. 12 years. If you look over into chapter 5 verse 14, it says that he returns to Artaxerxes in the 32nd year. This is the 20th year. He returns to Artaxerxes in the 32nd year. So uh, 12 years later, this is not just a little six-month expedition. 12 years he was asking the king for leave and saying, I'm going to be gone rebuilding a city that you destroyed, well, your predecessors destroyed, and I won't be here for 12 years. Well, I don't know if that's what he told him. I'm not sure how long. Now, by the way, even when he went back, we know that even from later, I think it's chapter 13, somewhere around there, we find out that Nehemiah actually eventually came back to Jerusalem again. So it is even a longer time frame. This is no small thing. He says to the king, I'd like to be gone. Whatever he says, the king agrees. And then, can you believe the boldness of Nehemiah? He's not even done yet. He's not even done yet. He says, hey, by the way, I got to go through a few little, like, little regions that are all, like, you set up these little guys that are governors of regions. I got to go pass through those. They're not going to be big fans of what I'm doing either because I'm building up a kingdom next to, I mean, a little town next to them. They don't like what I'm doing. Could you go ahead and just give me letters 
so that I can have a safe passage all the way through to get to where I'm going. Oh, and by the way, it might be nice, you know, the guy that keeps, that is in charge of all your forest land, all the trees you own, all this. It might be nice if you'd give him a letter for me and say, why don't you supply wood to rebuild the city and the fence, the buildings, oh, and the house I'm going to live in too. Is that okay? Now think about this. I'm telling you, the faith that came out of Nehemiah is born, is, is built on the humility and the mourning and the weeping and the time he spent in tears and in fasting and praying to God. Because he stands in front of what is probably the, if not the most, one of the most powerful men in the world at that time, the known world at that time, and he not only asks whether he can leave his place of service for a pretty long time, he says, go ahead and send me with your blessing and a lot of your supplies and help me accomplish something that most people would probably look at and say, why would you ever let him do that? Because it could be, it could be uh, a danger to your kingdom. But I'll go ahead and put all that out there. All of this I want to get us to or something that I'm, I'm building us towards. Because we have to see this conversation happening. And you and I, I think to some degree rightfully so because it's just how things work in our minds. You and I would see that there's this conversation happening and he's standing before the king who's the most powerful man. And he's asking his permission. And he's knowing that his, uh, what happens is in the king's hands. The king can decide this or the king can decide that. Except for I want us to see that Nehemiah didn't quite see it that way. He didn't quite see it as if standing before King Artaxerxes, whatever he decides, that's what's going to happen. I think that Nehemiah saw it that whatever God decides is what's going to happen. And he demonstrates that with the very little last sentence that's in our text today that I want to spend a little time with. In the end, again, I think, you, I think I've said this to you before. I, I'm, I'm blown away so many times by the understated things, the way things are understated in Scripture. When you see these monumental things happen, and it's just like a line or two in Scripture. I think we lose sometimes a bit of how amazing and how big and how great and how mighty God is because of how understated the Word of God is sometimes. This is a pretty monumental conversation. I'm guessing that most of us, if we were going to, even if you think you're friends with President Trump, and you were to go into his office and ask for something that you don't think he probably really wants to give you, I'm guessing it would be a bigger deal than just a couple of verses that we've scribbled out here, right? Like there would be churning of our stomach. We'd get nervous and we're not sure how this is going to work and all this stuff. And this is not even like this because I don't think he was even, yeah, anyway. But he says at the very end, and the king granted me, just a simple line, and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. In other words, the king came through and gave me everything that I asked for. But it really was not because the king was a nice guy. He may have been a nice guy. I don't really know. I don't, whatever. It wasn't because he decided on the goodness of his heart. Or it wasn't because I was such a stellar guy. And he said, you know what? If Nehemiah asked for it, I'm going to give him what he wants. Because he's been such a stand-up guy in my service. He did this for one reason. That's listed here. Because the good hand of God was upon What, a, what an incredible phrase, the good hand of God. There's all kinds of theology. There's all kinds of theology wrapped up in this phrase. 
First of all, that God, the hand is signifying what God can do, that the actions God does, and he can do them. But it's a good hand, right? It's a good hand. And when he does those things, we understand what Scripture says elsewhere, that he holds the hearts of kings in, his, in those hands. He can move them where he will. He can decide what happens. Well, the point I'm trying to make is that God is sovereign, and if there's anything that you've heard me say over and over and over again from the Word of God, it's that God is sovereign. And I will not stop saying it because we are over and over and over and over again in the need of having our perspectives adjusted. We get so myopic. We get so, we get so narrow focused on what's happening in our lives and what's happening maybe right around us, let alone across the entire globe, let alone across the span of history. And yet God is sovereign over all of that. And we see Him move. We forget, we forget so easily that we are but a little tiny blip in the scope of all the years of what God is doing. We become so self-focused, so self-centered, so, I mean, the 12 years that he was leaving was nothing in that scope, right? And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. There's something else I want to point out about this. And that is another leadership principle. Do you notice as Nehemiah, who has just spent days and nights weeping, fasting, praying, paying the price, looking not very good, having anguish in his soul over the condition of Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem, and he stands boldly for the king, and he continues to push when most of us would have said, well, I got this far, I better stop while the getting's good, otherwise he's going to get mad and change his mind. He keeps pushing, he keeps pushing, he keeps pushing. He has accomplished incredible things, and then he says, oh, by the way, this all happened because God did something. A godly leader gives credit where credit is due. That's my summary of that. A godly leader gives credit where credit is due. It is almost always true that if you are in a leadership position, you will not get to that place or you will not accomplish anything of value without someone else having helped you get there. And a godly leader will recognize that it was not just me that brought me to this place. I said it is almost always true in that sense. I can say this definitively. It is always true that a leader is never in their position or will accomplish anything of value without God helping, without God being part of that equation. And here we see Nehemiah do exactly that. Certainly he could credit maybe some other people, but in this case he went right to the source. He said, I have to give God credit. None of this would have happened. The king would not have given me his favor, would not have granted me what I wished if God would not have put his good hand on me and made that outcome happen. It reminds me again of what James says. We know this verse very well. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Any good thing that's in our lives is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I say that because it's a reflection of what just we, we just saw in Nehemiah. That good and perfect gift that came down, the granting of the king's, uh, of Nehemiah's request by the king was given by God. That's where it came from. That's where he saw it come from, and he was totally right in that. But I also share this verse because I love the ending part of it where it says that God doesn't change. It reminds us that God doesn't change, which means I can tell you this morning with every confidence, look you straight in the eyes and say that same good hand of, the, of God is available to you and to I, to me. I was not granted correct, to you and me. God hasn't changed, and his good hand is still there, giving every good and every perfect gift to us. Still accessible by the same route that Nehemiah took, which is humbling himself, which is through prayer, 
which is through crying out, which is through being desperate for God's intervention and God's help. Also then, by taking action and speaking when asked to and being bold about it when he did and saying, though I stand in the face of kings, you and I rarely stand in the face of kings, by the way. Isn't that kind of weird that we are scared? You know, Kayla came up here and talked about not being willing to talk sometimes. And that weird? We're kind of scared even talking to other people that are not that much different than us. And he stood in the face of kings and he took bold action. All of that based on the understanding that God is the one who's in control. If his good hand is upon me, I will have success. If it's not what he wants, then it doesn't matter how convincing I might be, how influential I might have been, how right I might be, or think I might be. It's not what God is asking for. Well, sometimes I ask you to stay over. Sometimes you have a gift and you get done early. Make sure you're still all tracking with me and awake. Why don't you stand? I don't know if the food is going to be quite ready since I usually expect me not to be done until till about noon. So you have time for conversation maybe. Uh, spend some time in fellowship. Hope you join us for food today. Uh, we want to eat together and enjoy good fellowship. If you stand, I'm going to pray for to close our message time and also to uh, ask for his blessing upon the food. Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word is always instructive to us. Thank you for those things we can glean even as we just read a couple of verses and we are moving through an actual story of what happened in Nehemiah. We pull some things out and we say, this is what it means for me. This is what it looks like for me. Help us, Father, help us, Father, to be content. And that contentment comes from trust, trusting in your sovereign hand, your good hand. Help us to rest in you, to humble ourselves before you and before others, allowing you to lift us up in due time. It's such a lesson for us, God. We have failed so often, and you continue to give us opportunities, and I'm grateful for that. Today, as we spend time together as a church body, I pray that you would just bless our time of fellowship. We ask for your blessing on the food, certainly. Again, we often even say that verse. I say that verse when I'm praying for food is that we receive it from you because we know every good and perfect gift comes from you. But the greater gift for us is the fellowship we can have. The, the, the camaraderie, the, the unity we can have in the Holy Spirit. And the greatest gift of all, Father, of course, is Jesus, what he's done for us. And so we receive the Holy Spirit as we leave this place. We receive the Holy Spirit uh, as the uh, divine power that you've given to us to live right before you, to honor Jesus for what he's done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks for being here. You may consider yourself dismissed. And when the food